welcome everyone to the startup and career show this is the show where we discuss everything about startup and corporate life with founders and business leaders who share their real life experiences so today we have a You are on mute. I can hear you now, Rishab. Great, great. Welcome to backstage, Anil. No, thank you. Thank you for having me, Rishab. Can you hear me fine? Okay, you are on mute again. Can you hear me now? Fine, uh, Rishab. Yes, I can. I can hear you. Great. You hear me, right, Anirudh? Sorry, say that again, Rishab. You could hear me, right? I can, um, but not super clearly. Oh, okay. I think you you are receiving a call in in between. I believe. Yes, I did. Okay, okay. Anyways, uh, so we'll proceed. Uh, to all our listeners, let me introduce Anirudh to all of you. He is the venture capitalist, tech entrepreneur, policy advisor, and the author. He is the managing partner at India Internet Fund. Previously, he worked with Government of India. McKinsey, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and Goldman Sachs is the MBA from Wharton School and MPA from Harvard Kennedy. He also served as a director on the board of Harvard Alumni Association. So tons and tons to learn from Anirudh from our conversation today. So Anirudh, if you can hear me now clearly, since you've written this book, so I wanted to begin with asking you if you could share your perspective on. how technology is shaping our world and our society sure no thanks so much for the kind introduction uh, rishab uh, and pleasure to be here and uh, pleasure to be joined by several listeners um, on on the chat so rishab i think that you know the, the technology piece is is a very interesting piece i think if you are in the tech startup and venture capital world yourself as i am and and uh, you know you are and i'm sure that some of our listeners might be as well either tech entrepreneurs or uh folks in the tech world today sometimes i feel that people within the tech world start to view tech very narrowly from the prism of their day to day jobs or the firms they are working with or the startups they've started so one of the things that i wanted to do with the book one of the goals of the book is to actually provide a big picture view to everyone no matter whether you are in the tech world or not for you to understand the broader picture the bigger picture of how tech is shaping our world and to your question about how i believe tech is shaping our world i believe that tech is shaping literally everything in our world today whether it's the economic 
destiny of nations, of individuals, of families. It's shaping our world order. It's shaping, you know, from a geopolitical lens, it's shaping how countries are interacting with each other, how new friendships, new alliances are being formed, are being shaped by technology and the tech capability of nations. And also, in addition to the economic and the geopolitical aspects of how tech is shaping our world, I believe that tech is also fundamentally reshaping uh, our society. Right? Let me spend a couple of minutes explaining what I mean by these three pieces. On the economic side, Rusha, basically I believe that today we are now living in a tech economy or a digital economy era, which is very distinct from the industrial economy era that we have lived in probably for the last 200 to 300 years which in turn was very distinct from the, I would say, agri and trade-based economy that that existed prior to the industrial era. So I believe that we've had a paradigm shift in the nature of our economy as a result of which new business models are emerging, new companies are becoming big or massive, really, right? Uh, big tech firms, for example. And uh, even the global digital value chains or the global digital ecosystem is very, very different from the traditional supply chain ecosystem that existed in the industrial era. So I believe the nature of our economies are changing fundamentally. That's one. You know, when it comes to geopolitics and the world order, today the competition between the US and China for tech leadership is having a massive impact on the alignments within our world. Who is friends with who? Who is not friends with who? Right, uh, and, and increasingly there's a fear that we are entering a Cold War type era again. And that's largely driven, in my opinion, by the tech competition between the US and China. Right? So in a way, tech is reshaping our world order as well. And countries that uh, are strong on the tech front today, like India, for example, right, are now much more desirable as friends on the, on the world stage to other countries than they previously might have been. So tech capabilities of nations are making, I think, those nations very attractive as partners on the international stage. That's number two. Number three, society-wise, right? If you go back and think about the industrial era, Rishabh, that industrial era completely transformed our society as well. It took us from an agrarian economy, agrarian society, which was spread out, right, in lots and lots of villages and let's say small towns, to massive cities. Urbanization is really one of the key implications, I believe, of the industrial era. The nature of our family changed. We had much bigger families. I think at least in India, we can very safely say that uh, the rise of the nuclear family was again a implication of the industrial economy, right? And so on and so forth. So similarly, the tech, what I call the great tech game or the tech economy is also changing our society, our societal structures, our values, our behaviors, how much time we spend with each other, how we spend that time with each other, and what we hold paramount as values, right? So that's in a nutshell, I would say, the the just a glimpse of the breadth and scope of how tech is shaping our world. Oh, absolutely, Anirudh, no doubt. Uh, but in fact, you made an interesting point and wanted to ask you on that specifically. Because in today's day and age, if we look at market capitalization of these major organizations, right, these tech companies are, they are leading all across, right? And uh, they are rather replacing the manufacturing and industrial era firms completely. 
So what are the implications that you foresee now? See, there are many implications of this, right? One is just from a, you know, if you look at it from a standpoint of what, why are these companies valued more than the industrial era firms, right? One reason, one prime reason is that they are growing much faster. Right? That I think a lot of us know, especially those who will be in the startup world. They'll know that obviously today, the e-commerce firms are growing at a much faster rate of growth than a traditional retailer, right? And you can similarly draw parallels between, um, let's say, an Ola Uber growing faster than a traditional auto company and so on and so forth, right? Um, or even an EV company today growing, uh, at least in certain parts of the world, growing much faster than traditional auto players. So one is obviously about the rate of growth, but the other interesting point that I want to point out is that a different set of assets are now becoming valued, right? In the book, I talk about this in, in the form of tangible assets versus intangible assets. You know, traditional industrial firms have traditionally accumulated a lot of physical assets. And that has been the key driver of their business. More factories, more machinery, more land, so on and so forth. More stores, right? Whereas if you look at <clears throat> the big tech firms, and you look at their market capitalization, you realize that a lot of their value, at least from the stock market standpoint, is being assigned to the intangible assets that they hold. The data, the community, the number of users, software, etc. Right? And that's a key point that I want to highlight because as we think about starting up businesses today, right, in the great tech game era, as entrepreneurs, <clears throat> we must understand that <clears throat> intangible assets are today almost more valued by the market, by the stock market or any market, financial market, than necessarily your tangible assets, right? Physical. That's another key implication I wanted to point out. The third piece I'll point out, and of course, there's many I can talk about, but uh, just one last piece I'll talk about is how the big tech firms are actually, at least in today's world, becoming winner-take-all type models, right? Especially on the B2C side. And that was not so much the case in the earlier eras. Though it's not to say that monopolies have not existed earlier. But today, if you're finding in tech, if you look at any subsector of tech, you find that the top two, three players are today completely dominating that market, right? Uh, you can take retail, for example, right? Today, an Amazon and a Flipkart probably have... 80% market share of your e-commerce industry. Whereas if you were to look at traditional retail, that market share was much more split between different players, right? So that has implications again for our economy where wealth is starting to get a lot more concentrated. Power is starting to get a lot more concentrated, even more than the era when oil and telecom companies used to be considered the big monopolies, right? So, so people argue that tech firms are today even more monopolistic by nature uh, or more dominant by nature than uh, the earlier ones, right? Um, and I can go on and on, but I think I'll, I'll just stop there. Those are some key points that I thought I'll point out. Oh, absolutely. In fact, Anirudh, you made an interesting point. And on, on taking note on that, uh, see, earlier land, capital, labor were these important factors for production, right? But now technology is the center literally of everything. So how is technology beginning to transform these economic destinies of so many nations today? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great question. Uh, you know, I spent some time in the book, Rishabh, talking about this, where, you know, traditionally, if you were an economic student, you've been told that, you know, there are three or three factors of production for any business. Three things that matter, land, labor, and capital, right? Um, and ultimately, to whatever extent you can increase your productivity, that leads to economic growth in a nation also, right? So today, tech is shaping the economic destiny of nations, I'll say it simply in two ways. One is, it's become an additional factor of production, very clearly. Much like land, labor, and capital today, businesses have to accumulate technology. Have to accumulate and leverage technology in their businesses, much like, you know, and let me take the example of a small business today. Right? A small business, let's say a Kirana store or a shopkeeper, typically needed some land on which he had his store, needed uh, some labor right in the store to serve the customers and then needed capital to buy inventory etc right that's typically the the model that it existed right but if you now look for a, even a small retailer let alone the big tech firms right today to the extent that he can leverage technology as a factor of production by which i mean to the extent he can use technology in his day-to-day -day business to drive customer acquisition to drive productivity to drive uh, efficiencies the bigger and better that business will become. So technology has become a factor of production no matter what field of the economy you might be working in. Right? Um, that's one. The second key implication I would say is that you know, tech is today driving, is the key driver of productivity growth. Right? Unlike the other factors of production, Actually, technology is making all the other three factors of production in your business more efficient and more productive. So let me explain what I mean by that. Technology today will make that labor more productive also in your shop because you can enable them with smartphones that can help them communicate more easily with the consumer, with your customer, so on and so forth, track inventory using the phone, etc. It Today, you know, if you look at agri-tech, tech itself is making farmland more productive very simply put, right? So it's making land as a factor of production also more productive. And of course, it's making capital more productive. You know, I come from the venture capital world. Today, capital is chasing tech, not the other way around. You know, today there's an abundance of capital that wants to go into tech companies because even capital needs tech companies today to give it the returns uh, that it needs, right? So investors today who have an abundance of capital need tech firms because tech firms are the ones that are growing fast that are rapidly expanding, right, to get the returns that they want for their capital. So in very fundamental ways, tech is driving the, I, I think, the economies of nations. True, true. In fact, you, you pointed out uh, pretty interesting stuff, uh, Anirudh, here. But uh, going to your previous response, right, you, you did mention that tech is also becoming uh, monopolistic in nature. Right. So, uh, and there are, there are, we also keep on hearing in the, uh, you know, in the uh, news media, there seems to be some kind of a battle going on between the big tech and the state, per se. So, who do you think is winning in this battle directly? That's right, that's right. Uh, there's a massive battle going on between big tech firms and governments today, right? Uh, which is what I call a tug-of-war between the states and big tech firms, that uh, in many ways could remind you of, if you're a student of history, could remind you of almost the... Uh, you know, the way East India Company 
was a private firm, right? Uh, but tried to assume the sovereign functions of the state in many countries around the world, obviously in India as well, right? So there's a historical context here of how there's always been a tug of war between private sector firms and the governments of nations, right? Um, and that today is playing out in a very, I would say, in a very um, almost a, 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 a you know once in an era type of way because today big tech firms are so massively powerful right not just in terms of the fact that they have um, you know billions and billions of dollars on their balance sheets right but also more importantly that they control and own the data which can tell them so much about society about their consumers about what's going on in a country right they control communications they control commerce right um, and so they are, they they almost understand what's going on in a country better than a government might right and because of this massive increase in the power and influence and capabilities of these big tech firms vis-a-vis -vis governments we are finding that governments are trying to fight back right uh, because ultimately it's a matter of i would say battle of values and battle of control right that's going on right now between big tech firms and the governments where governments are very clear that big tech firms must not step on the key what i call the key sovereign functions of any government right uh, which could be you can say sovereign functions could mean the fact that government alone can issue currency hence this entire backlash against the idea of cryptocurrencies in india that you're seeing right the indian government and the rbi institutions like that do not want the sovereign function of issuing and managing the currency in the country to go away from the government and its institutions similarly foreign policy national security right so you'll find that a lot of the battles between big tech firms and the government often arise uh, in the national security sector because the governments do want access to the communication being done on some of these platforms right but of course these platforms on their own end say that listen for us privacy for our consumers is paramount right and so there's a tug of war where governments also right that they do need access to communication sometimes especially when anti national or terrorist or other kinds of elements that are dangerous for our society are leveraging these communication platforms to you know conduct attacks or 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 facilitate any such um <clears throat> actions so they are also right governments also right but i think the private sector firms also right so the battle we are seeing is is multifold in multiple dimensions and across the world you have so many examples of you know obviously europe is uh, cracking down hard on uh, big tech firms in form of regulation and fines whenever they find that they're acting monopolistically china you would have recently heard in the last few months has really cracked down on some of their own big tech firms including alibaba there was the famous case of you know jack ma disappearing for some time um as well i've written a lot about how china how these battles are playing out in china russia australia the uk and of course the us and and closer to home in india as well and i feel like this battle will continue for some time though i do think that you know in the last few months rushab to your question i think that the governments have been winning they've really managed to put down their foot and say that uh, the big tech firms have to follow and adhere to the laws of the country right but i do think that there is going to be a multi stage tug of war 
that even though i think that the government has come out in my view the winner in the last few months this battle will continue and the big tech firms will also fight back strategically so it's it's, it's i think it's a battle for us to keep watching keep an eye on well anirudh i think you made some interesting points uh in the beginning of the conversation you also said that countries like india are like a desirable friends for everybody right especially in the current uh, us versus china game on the technology front but at the same time uh, you know we also have uh, you know history to talk about east india company that you said so do you think we need to fear digital colonialism or any potential safeguards you see that as a country like india has at its disposal you know so digital colonialism is is a, is a concept that doesn't get talked about too much in the global discourse because i think you know a lot of the global discourse today is being shaped by the bigger tech powers of the world including the us right and and for them of course colonialism was not while even though they were also colonies uh, the us was also technically a british colony for quite some time but they did not have the same kind of i would say um experience that a country like india had with colonialism right the kind of intense subjugation i think economically politically and societally that we underwent and and hence i think it's very important for countries to especially those who were colonies in the previous era to keep in mind that you don't want to end up in a situation where your resources let's say in the form of data today right the argument for digital colonialism basically says for those who are not familiar that much like our land our economies our armies were were leveraged by our colonial masters right by the colonial powers for their own economic benefit and not for the benefit of the local population similarly today some people are arguing people who believe that digital colonialism is a clear threat argue that today our data as a country uh, and as consumers is not being leveraged for any economic benefit accruing to us or rather let's say we're not getting sufficient returns for the value that is being created out of our data and that the vast majority of the value is actually accruing to firms that that are obviously originating from outside the country and hence there's a fear that there will again be an economic imbalance for a long time because the the big tech firms or other such firms will just be so much more powerful and so much richer that we'll end up being economically uh, disadvantaged right and i think that there's some merit to that argument that i do believe that in the, even in the case of india we must be mindful of the experience we've undergone during the colonial era and make sure that we are not um how do i put it uh, that we are not economically disadvantaged and that the value being created in our country also does accrue to our citizens i think that's an important point to keep in mind as policy makers and as a society at the same time i also will say that colonialism sometimes or anti colonialism or digital colonialism is sometimes used as an excuse by you know nations that were earlier colonized to to not adopt technology to not play the great tech game to say that no we cannot play this game and we cannot let foreign companies come in so i think that it should not also devolve into a closed economy type mindset or a very protectionist economy type mindset because i think then you actually end up excluding yourself from what i call the great tech game completely rather you have to learn how to play the game on an equal footing and i think it's partly the job of the 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 government here when it comes to regulation policy to make sure that there's equal 
an equal footing available for firms around the world and i think you know india is doing a great job with that for example we all have heard about the india stack about upi about aadhar i think these are some of the elements that are allowing india to create a digital commons where data is not necessarily the monopoly of a firm or, or two right rather it's available more broadly to a set of firms that want to innovate using that data and i think that's the right model uh that that i think india is trying to adopt and i hope that that can continue right and expand to other sectors beyond fintech as well so i think that's one the other piece i will say is that you know having been through that colonialism experience rishab um many governments are very clearly uh you know their ears are up if any any such situation stand to arise and you're finding that governments are very proactive this time around maybe compared to let's say 200 years ago Right? Mm. so i do think that uh, we are a lot more aware of the dangers of a colonial type relationship uh, and hence are a lot more proactive now second you know there th- there's also a very interesting trend going on right now where big tech firms are now starting to compete with each other to be better on let's say things like privacy you might have heard a few months ago uh, there was a battle almost between facebook and apple where apple was saying that listen i value the privacy concerns of my customers and hence i am not going to let you access all the data unless the consumer has clearly given you permission right and that led to a massive drop in the ad revenues for facebook right um and 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 so you might find that over the next few years big tech firms themselves will compete as long as the consumers are highlighting that privacy is a big important uh, piece for them that they will actually in their competition only actually possibly prevent or avoid some of the colonial type relationships that sometimes are creeping in into the tech era, uh, into the tech sector right so i think that 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 there are a lot of safeguards like that that i think should hopefully prevent a digital colonialism type era from you got a call and you are on mute right now can you hear me rosha yes i can i can yeah can you do the on mute can you hear me now yes i can yeah Yeah, so I do believe that there are several now safeguards, both from a government standpoint, also I think competition between the big tech firms themselves, that hopefully should avoid a digital colonialism type uh, era from emerging. But I do think again, like one last point here on this question, Rushab, is that it's going to be much harder for smaller nations to withstand such, um, you know, uh, imbalanced. Relationships, right? It's easier for a larger country, larger market like India to exert its. Uh, power and strength vis-a-vis big tech firms but you'll find that smaller nations smaller economies might have a harder time right and for that in the book i argue that really global governance regimes you know um, not that the un has been super effective necessarily uh, by by many metrics in 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 uh, on on the world stage but i think that mechanisms of global governance will have to be put in place so that even smaller nations can 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 play on an equal footing right visa we big tech firms i think that's an important responsibility almost of the big nations in the in the tech era to make sure that the smaller nations don't end up uh, in in these imbalanced power relationships with big tech firms true true but but anirudh uh, taking taking the cue from your response earlier 
you know, India continues to be viewed as a big market, right? And at the same time, India continues to be a huge resource of a talent provider. But how do you see we moving from being a talent provider to a say, technology provider? You did touch base upon India's stack being developed, right? So, right. if you can show some more part on that. Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I very clearly said in my book that we need to aim to be a tech nation, not just a talent nation, right? So, today, going back to the point we discussed earlier about the factors of production, right, Rishabh? Land, labor, capital versus technology as a, as a new factor of production almost. See, labor and talent is obviously a key factor of production that we are strongly placed on, Right. But as I was saying today, tech is what drives wealth creation. So if you own the tech, it's not enough for us to be a market, right? We were a, <laughs> I like to say, we were a jewel in the crown of the British Empire also, because we were a big market, right? True. But uh, we weren't seeing the value being retained by us. The value was being retained by players outside, right? Uh, Britain in this case. Similarly today, we must be clear that uh, it's not enough to build unicorns and it's not enough to have the biggest number of users or the second largest market in terms of mobile users, let's say, or internet users in the world. That's not sufficient. It's necessary, but not sufficient. We have to build and own tech, by which I mean that we must own some of the underlying layers of software, whether it's operating system layers or middle layers and not just the application layer. Because if you do an analysis of that software stack, you realize that oftentimes today Apple and Google are making money because they own the operating system also. Or they own the search platform, right? Which is the foundational platform. So we need to think of how do we get companies that build big moats around their businesses, around their tech, and then leverage that moat or leverage that ownership of tech to then generate massive bank balances on their balance sheets. You know, I like to point out that I think of, of the almost 100 unicorns I think we might have in India now, if you were to add up the balance sheet, uh, the balances on their balance sheets, I don't think that combined we'll have the the kind of balance sheet surplus that uh, Apple has on its balance sheets, right? Or any one of the big tech firms. So we have to understand that being a consumer market is not enough in the tech era. We must own tech. And for that, we must actually pour in a lot more money and resources into tech research, scientific research, R&D, right? Core fundamental R&D across all, or at least certain select sectors, right? So that we are building core technology IP in our country that can then yield massive returns over time, right? So I think research is a big piece missing, even though we have the talent and the capital today in India, we don't necessarily have the uh, tech or, or the R&D I think spend that we need in India. That's one thing that I think India needs to correct for. Uh, the other piece I think is that we also need to be clearer about what is it that our strategy is for competing or what is our role in the global tech ecosystem, right? If I ask you what is Taiwan's role in the global tech ecosystem, it's very clear today they are a massive player in the semiconductor industry uh, and their firms today are uh, basically the key suppliers for all electronics and tech uh, manufacturing going on globally. Right? And that puts them in a very sort of strong position uh, in the global tech ecosystem. Question we must think and talk a lot more about is what is India's role in that global tech ecosystem? Is it just as a service provider? Is IT services and 
you know app based services the only thing we want to be known for or do we want to actually have a much bigger role where you know for example i'll take the it service example do we just want the infosys and tcs's of the world or do we want just the geos and airtels of the world coming out of india or do we also want the cisco's and the uh, qualcomm's of the world coming out of india as well because those are the companies that sometimes then leverage their tech ownership to really build deep pockets right which they can then leverage for further innovation further acquisition of startups and so on and so forth so i think that i would say that it's a strategy that still i think needs to be worked on and the r&d piece that india needs to work on a lot more for india to become a tech nation and not just remain a talent nation that's a very interesting perspective anirudh but uh, you know as we speak uh, and we often hear about tech for good right uh, these days but there is also a huge digital divide being created between haves and have not you know the way it was uh, in the yester years uh, we used to talk about uh, from the money monetary standpoint now it is spoken from a tech standpoint so how do we tackle that you know that's probably the most difficult <laughs> one to tackle rushav i think that some of the other pieces we've talked about are probably slightly easier and clearer to work on i think that today this is a massive problem the issue of digital divide we are finding that uh, and i talk about this in the book a little bit where i worry that we are possibly on the throes of a second great divergence um the first great divergence being when the western european nations that industrialized early grew so much faster than the other nations in the world that they just became so much more developed so much quickly so quickly right and that is what is called the first great divergence in our history economic divergence i worry that today we are in the throes of a second great divergence not just between nations between nations that capture uh, the ownership of tech and you know ownership of data and resources and build the big tech firms and from and the countries that don't there's obviously that at the international level but i think even within nations to your point there is now a digital divide between the people who are engaged in the tech sector and those that are not and anyway, it's very similar if you go back 300 400 years you can almost imagine that if you were working in a you know pottery workshop or a textile workshop right as as a, a labor manual labor manual worker there and suddenly you saw that a, a, a colleague of yours from your village is now working in a large textile factory and was getting paid a lot more versus you and then he was moving up the the chain or the ranks and becoming a manager and then a senior manager and and an executive of a large industrial firm there is clearly a big divide right that was emerging between the two of you right even though you started off let's say similar skills today is the same kind of divide happening where people who are not in the tech sector have this you know what we call fomo right that we are missing out on this new sector that's growing and new skill sets so i think the solution to this however is extremely hard uh but has to be done because if we don't then we'll see such a massive backlash domestically and societally that i think we'll end up having a big big sort of problem that the solution must i think do three or four things one you know much like i think has been done in the last few years the the technology basic core technology or let's say the mobile phone and the internet and any other such emerging technologies must be democratized and be widespread in its adoption penetration to the extent possible and i think firms like geo airtel etc i would say have done a good job with making sure that the internet and mobile access is available a lot more widely i think that's one good thing the second piece is on the skills and capabilities side right so i think that that's still a selective group of people in india who have access to the necessary skills and capabilities to succeed in the tech game 
I think that piece we still need to work on. Israel offers a very interesting example. They've been teaching cybersecurity, by the way, in their schools starting eighth or ninth grade, right? So to me, that offers a good example that okay, how much more digital literacy should we be introducing into our curriculums? You know, whether it's in schools in cities or schools in villages or schools in small towns, right? So that come college. or let's say even if some students do not make it to college at least they have the basic tech capabilities to compete or be employed in the tech sector right if they want to right so there's the skills and capabilities point um the third piece i would say is really um <laughs> a tougher one which is you know there's a structural transition in play right now that is inevitable the people who are in their 40s 50s 60s today in india right rushab for them it will be very hard to make the transition at this point in their careers right so the question really from a policy standpoint becomes how do we help pretty much different age groups and different socio economic groups and it has to be a very sort of granular strategy in a way to look at each of these subgroups of our population and see okay how do we help them and then have a strategy for almost each of these groups the strategy to help a 15 year old to compete and be a successful player in the great tech game will be different versus a 50 year old right will be different true true and so on and so forth oh, but it's a very tough it's a very very tough transition but i think one of the goals of our society i think in the next 15 20 years is to manage that transition very well no absolutely anirudh no doubt because that is definitely a huge huge criteria Right, and then tech is. By the way, Europe didn't do a very good job with it, right? If you go back to 1910s, pre World War One and post World War One era, a lot of the backlash against capitalism, hmm. right, that resulted obviously in movements such as communism, socialism, etc., right. And we know that the next hundred years was basically a battle. That Cold War battle was largely a battle between capitalism and communism, right, as political ideologies. All of that arose from the fact that massive inequalities arose during that industrial era time. Right, pre World War One era, the inequality levels are the same today. By the way, mm. at the same point now as they were then, and so the fear of there being a massive uh, social economic backlash against what we think is this juggernaut of technology that will just keep, you know, rising, uh, raising all boats and all of them, it's a real, uh, real scary, I think, prospect, and we must not let it uh, get to the point where a societal um, Structures break down, right? This time around. So absolutely. Right? So we must do a better job for sure. Oh, absolutely, Anirudh. No doubt. So Anirudh, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you one more thing because you are the first author to have taken to creating NFTs with this launch uh, of this the Great Tech Game. So if you can uh, talk about what these collectors are, you know, collectibles are all about. In fact, our listener, one of the listener named Ranjit, he's also asked a similar question. that how do you think the reader and the book industry will add up to these changes yes so see uh, rishab i introduced I, i think it was the first author possibly in the world but definitely in uh, asia to introduce or launch nfts along with the book right now in my case what i did was i've offered a, a small number uh, of exclusive sort of number digitally signed covers of my book that actually have a unique word cloud art so if you go on to open sea uh, or just google open sea and great tech game you'll see the collection uh, it's basically a word cloud uh, generated each of the nfts is unique each word cloud has a set of words or themes uh, taken from the book from the book's themes 
right and 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 all of them are digitally signed by me and and the idea here is twofold right one is that these nfts serve as a way to you know i'm one of the arguments in my book is that we must adapt to the emerging uh, uh, technology quickly right so one of my goals of creating nfts was to literally not just say it but do it right uh, as as web3 and nfts uh become a lot more popular i wanted to make sure that even the publishing industry and books and authors weren't left out and wasn't just the musicians and the cricketers and the athletes who were leveraging nfts but also book readers and book writers uh the second goal was you know uh that i i hope that i can also inspire other authors to do it especially the more i would say the the very well known and popular authors of our world because for them they can actually generate a lot of revenue out of this and one of the things i am doing with whatever revenues i'll generate out of uh, the sale of nfts in my case is to give it to nonprofits who are working on tech inclusion to the point that we were just discussing about tech for good and making sure that tech is broad based in its uh, spread uh, i do believe that it's our responsibility to make sure that we are all you know even those who are working in the tech world it's our responsibility at some point to make sure that tech is a lot more inclusive and so this is again just one other way for me to try and uh, make that point for all of us in the tech community wow that that's awesome anirudh that's awesome so anirudh uh, you know i had requested half an hour of your time and we have already covered uh, 40 minutes you know so you know with with five more minutes with your permission there are few questions that these students have asked uh, and if you can take sure. them yeah sure so so i think uh, shubham one of our listeners has asked you that what is the market exposure strategy that your company targets on is it global or indian i believe uh, from an investment standpoint do you look at indian companies or you also invest uh, in the global startups so rishabh we have two sister funds one in the us market and one here in the india market uh, so out of the india fund we look at primarily india companies indian companies but we look at indian companies not just serving india but we also look at indian companies that are looking to serve the world so a lot of our companies almost i would say a third of our companies have initially started in india and looked at the indian market but then have eventually expanded their scope to look at the global market mm. and some of them have also often shifted base right to serve other markets better whether in southeast asia or in the us right so we are quite open as long as there's a india connect either the team was set up here or the product was built here we happy to look at companies that are looking to target the world also from here and of course we have a us fund that looks at us based companies to begin with but they also by the way look at companies that are setting up shop in the us but are looking to come to the india market and so we end up doing a lot of collaboration between the two funds and the portfolios in both countries to make sure that we can also facilitate the kind of cross uh, border collaboration or cross border expansion for companies so i would say that happy to look at uh, from our funds perspective happy to look at companies both focused on india or also outside got it got it in fact arvind another listener uh, has asked an interesting question that could you give us an example of any recent portfolio company whose business you are extremely looking forward to sure uh, so one of the companies that uh, we have in our portfolio is a company called tala they used to be called inventure they are a fintech platform uh, they initially started off actually in india but have now expanded globally and now are uh, you know working in the markets like kenya philippines uh, india obviously mexico and a few others right globally and now based out of la and have raised subsequent rounds of capital also from us based venture capital firms 
including Chris Saka, who's a big investor in Twitter and many other such large firms. You know, the reason I'm very excited about their business model is that, you know, they early on re- realized, you know, this is now back in 2013, I would say, before the entire fintech revolution we've seen in the last two, three years in India. They realized very quickly that there are many people in, the, in our country and also in other developing countries who don't have access to credit or to loans because they don't have a credit score. And they don't have a credit score because they don't have bank accounts, right? Um, and 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 so Tala was one of the first companies. That Anirudh got a call. That was building credit scores uh, basis the data they were being able to collect from your mobile phone usage, right? And that of course has now expanded and uh, and and become a global business model where they are now doing a lot of micro loans with a very refined credit scoring algorithm that they've now perfected over the last i would say six seven years and and they're going very very rapidly now right as a result globally and and you know it's a company to an earlier question asked by uh you know the person before it's a company that really grew out of india but is now truly a global company right um and is really innovating mm. day in day out so i'm very excited to see their growth wow in fact, uh, is there any sector Arirudh, that you that you have not invested and you are keen to invest in future? Ketan has asked this question. Yeah, so we are looking at a lot more now uh, companies in uh, healthcare tech and edtech and climate tech, um, Roshan. Hmm. So which we haven't done yet, uh, and and we're looking forward to doing more investments in 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 those sectors in the coming years. Okay, okay. And uh, there is one more question from Priyanka, the last one. And she says, sir, don't you think cross-functional tech alliances with other countries is also one of the steps in making India a tech nation? For sure. I think that's a great question, a great point. I, I, I think that's definitely an extremely important part of the strategy or the game plan for India. right? Uh, if For those who are interested in the book and the kinds of themes we've discussed, uh, if they get the book, the last chapter in my book is actually uh, what I call a game plan for India. And one of the things I do mention there, uh, as per just the question right now, is that India must build partnerships globally with countries that can provide it support or, or fill in the gaps that we today have, right? So, for example, I'll give you an example, cybersecurity. Cybersecurity and the future of war is increasingly move, moving towards the cyber dimension. And India might not necessarily be the best placed uh, when it comes to our cyber defense capabilities or cyber offense capabilities in the case of war, right? Even if it's with a neighbor, the war might not be happening just on the physical borders, but might actually happen on the digital borders or digital domains, right? So we have to make sure that we are able to protect, let's say, our UPI infrastructure tomorrow in the case of any kind of uh, conflict, right, with an adversary. And in that case today, if we don't have the kind of capability, instead of saying that I'm going to take the next 10 years to build that capability, it's very important to build partnerships with, let's say, countries like Israel or others that are stronger on that particular domain so that we can quickly catch up. So I do think that tech-based alliances are going to be a key part of uh, of India's own strategy to compete and win in the great tech game. True, true, true. Absolutely. So, Anirudh, uh, before you leave, one last advice if you can share with our students who are listening to you live. Sure. So, I, I, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, Rishabh, but I would say that for those students who are listening or any potential entrepreneurs uh, who are listening, uh, 
the one piece of advice that i'll give is that you know as you think about the great tech game and your particular role in it right you're young you have the next several decades ahead of you the game has changed and the game is changing make sure you understand what the new game looks like what the new game means and also make sure that you know how to create a niche or a speciality within it right uh, i think that's very important to not become a me too to not start companies that are necessarily just copying business models that you've seen work elsewhere but to really think from the grounds up think from first principles and see okay what are the problems around you what are the solutions that could possibly solve that problem and how can you leverage tech to uh, scale up the solution that you're thinking of and get it to a lot more users than you otherwise would if you did not have uh, a tech based platform and and so think of also not just necessarily the b2c internet sectors where you have like large big tech firms who become incumbent players but also think of emerging technology waves like climate web3 we've spoken about nfts but think about the emerging waves of technology and try and uh, you know try and start up companies in those spaces because there you're much more likely to find that you know you're able to innovate and and be ahead of others as opposed to trying to just copy you know a twitter or a facebook or, uh, or or what not and trying to build that for india i think that that i would say is is an important uh, lesson i'd like to share with everyone well i think uh, that's lovely anirudh thanks for sharing this uh, and it was great speaking to you today thanks for uh, you know taking out time to be with us on backstage and you know it's an honor speaking to you anirudh No, no, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rishabh. I hope this was helpful, and please do go get the book. Uh, if uh, this is interesting, I would love to hear people's thoughts and views on 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 the themes I've raised in the book. My goal is really to start a conversation and have more people be aware of the dynamics of this game. So I would love to have uh, people share their feedback, their thoughts also. Absolutely, Anirudh. Thank you, thank you for your time, and thank you to all our listeners as well for joining us today. Thank you.